It's an absolutely wonderful time to be in applied psychology and experiential learning. It's wonderful because now we don't have to do all the hard work alone anymore. There are lots of people, like these guys, solving these types of problems and making them work. They may have been different fields uh, at one point, and now they're not anymore, and we all need each other. We have incredible technologists kind of creating things for no reason whatsoever other than they can, and trying to solve problems that the average person doesn't really care about yet, but they do which is wonderful though because then we have all these use cases these needs whether it's in health education to use these systems so it's, it, it really is truly wonderful and uh, by the way from a funding perspective always add a psychologist on if it makes it a lot easier <laughs> um, you know it's, it's a social interest so the, 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 the technology is very very important but from an experiential learning point of view in any number of fields the, the, the way I like to think about it is we want it to be like the projector in a cinema. The cinema, you know, when you go into the cinema, it's not all about the projector for the user, but yet it is all about the projector at the same time. This kind of invisibility and transparency of the technology is, is really the ideal thing. Um, building, though, on the point you're talking about, about cognitive load, and uh, an another term I like to use in, in my work is experiential load. Cognitive load is... You know, essentially the effort that we're putting into a task and you know, the classic example is when you learn to play a musical instrument or drive or something like that it becomes more automated you're not needing to put the effort in anymore it becomes subconscious or automated in some way but um, when we're having an experience of any description bringing it really back to the subject the user the participant that's going to be sourced roughly, and you can think of it as something of a spectrum, physically, as we could say, here's the physical table here, virtually, as in, and the word virtual typically means almost, doesn't it, in regular use. So we may have a hologram of the table, for example, and for all intents and purposes, as long as I don't try to put anything on the table, it's a table. But it's not fully a table. If I try to put something on it, it's going to be a problem. But I also have the capacity to close my eyes and still have a table there in some meaningful shape or form. So I think from an experiential load point of view, it's helpful to think how much of the environment or the technology is giving the user the experience in any given moment. Now, this matters quite a bit because from, uh, from a user perspective, you know, you can have... HMD or a very, very technologically immersive environment, but of course you may not have presence in it. The person's attention could be thinking about something else because you haven't properly engaged them from a narrative perspective. So this presence immersion distinction is, is really crucial in this. And this is where a part of quality assurance is actually tracking that. You could have a very high fidelity experience, but there's no traction happening with the user. So that's going to be an issue. You can, of course, have something like a film in the cinema, which you know, isn't as immersive, but can be pretty decent. You can have, in Ireland, probably if you go back a few thousand years ago here, there would have been forests and an old Irish shanaki, a storyteller, telling a story. He maybe or she may have achieved incredible presence, no technology to speak of. Or there may have been cave paintings or drawings in the sand that could have evoked emotion as well, very, very powerfully. And then on the very far end of the spectrum, you can scrap all of that altogether. A person could walk away after that and still be lost in thought, having a very, very presence-filled experience. So the technology, we really need to push it far and see what we can do with it, but then pull it back very, very often and get good at using it subtly. 
As a musician, you don't say, okay, I've got lots of keys on my piano, let me push them all down. But yet at the same time, we do need to really push the limits of the technology so we can pull it back. So I'm personally delighted that all of these developments are happening, but bringing in the subtlety then and making it user-focused on sense-making, I think that's where the magic will happen. I'd like to hear some of the panelists speak about the, the smell and, and the senses part of it. Can I make just a brief educational point, though, on that, just to frame what you say? Because that idea of being able to use this technology as a form of scaffolding, essentially, for learning is an extremely important point. And it's the, the point, exactly the point you just made there. A very similar point was made by Lev Vygotsky about 100 years ago, uh, which he was pretty ahead of his time as well when he was talking about disability at the time. And he essentially said that, look, it's wrong to think that you leave people aside educationally because of lacks or disability. So that's exactly the wrong way of thinking about it. He said, instead, you use the environment to scaffold, essentially, and build up certain supports so that they can learn things they otherwise couldn't learn, and that those things can be in trained, essentially. An absolutely crucial point, I think, in all of this. Yeah, well, I love that non-normative point. That's key. And, and you know, what we, as scientists, in whatever domain, we have to be so careful that we, we, we think we can be normative in what we do. Every time we start when we're researching, we have to make the case for what we're researching. We have to bring in the metrics we use and the tools we use consciously and deliberately you know, with, with the risk of getting it wrong. So when we start falling back on, oh yeah, here's a measure of presence or something, and we tick a box, we, we've just completely lost that. We, we need to build the case from, from scratch each time. And it may require very different measures in different cases. And if, some, if somebody's uncomfortable in the experience, maybe that's what the experience is trying to create. So it, it isn't as simple. The, there's two things that um, we fall back on a lot, I suppose, from a therapeutic uh, and educational perspective. Um, co-creation and triangulation, essentially. So the co-creation is where we really share the quality control with the participant. And we, we do this actually very deliberately, therapeutically, from a psychological therapy perspective, rather in the same way as a physiotherapist would doing physical therapy with somebody. You don't just push and pull somebody's legs and arms and then hope at the end of the day that it worked. You talk to them while you're doing it. Now, the interesting thing is, does that break flow? Um, not necessarily, because computer games, video games do this too sometimes. If you think about like Fallout or Skyrim, where they have ways that they ask you what you want to develop and they get feedback from you. If you can cleverly build it into the narrative, you can actually have flow as well as feedback happening in real time from the participant. And that uh, co-creation is very, very powerful. Because if you invite somebody to, as a therapist, share a virtual space with you, amazing things can happen. And, you know, just to make this a bit more visual, was Morpheus's role in the constructs with Neo really breaking Neo's presence? No. There's a co-creation going on here, and that, that's perfectly reasonable. Mm -hmm. So that's one way we can make life easier for ourselves. Stop thinking we need to know all the answers. Just ask and think of clever ways to incorporate that in. The second bit then, triangulation, kind of speaks for itself. It's a multi-measure point, really. Let's bring a lot of these measures in, but also have the participant looking at the data coming in. And there's a kind of a, a biofeedback going on then that, that's useful. Yeah, virtual reality is, uh, or any form of applied mixed reality, is a, a, a useful and often practical uh, substitute for 
reality. alternative experience, let's call it, which is reality. But you know, that, that, that is real too. Virtuality is real. The point is there's nothing that isn't virtual. Right now, we're sitting here at some tables making sounds. Your capacity to know what we mean is based on you having a shared experience with us and having heard these sounds before. Right now, you're not listening to what I'm saying. You're listening to your past because it is populating the meaning that hopefully is coming up when I'm speaking. This is a virtual experience. Everything's a virtual experience. So in a sense, we need to move beyond thinking about technology in this very narrowly defined HMD sense and um, think more about almost a kind of a cognitive ergonomics in a sense. Start thinking about using the environment. There's no environment that isn't a mediated environment in some shape or form. Um, it's always happening. There's acoustics in the room right now, whether we're having a Skype call or speaking in a room, there's something like that happening. And the same with everything else, the chairs we're sitting on and everything else. So I think we need to start thinking about that broadly. Um, specifically then therapeutic, whether it's physical, psychological or a combination, um, what we're always looking for, I suppose, in a rehabilitative sense, is for the affordances of the environment that can help develop what, whatever it is we want to develop, which might be proficiency in something, recognition of something, the ability to deal with something more efficiently or effectively, and exactly like the point you're just making, you know, the flight simulate airtime is going to be hard to get. You don't want to give the pilot a book on flying. So, you know, somewhere in the middle, like a simulator is going to do the job well. And as affordances, i.e. the control panels, which are very similar, are identical to the, the real experience of doing it. You don't really need to be in the air if the simulator simulates that part of it. Those affordances don't particularly matter, so it's very, very useful. So there's going to be times where it's going to be as easy to do it one way, and other times as easy to do it another way. One simple example of this that, that we use currently is a very common phobia is of driving or a performance anxiety around driving. And uh, it's not talked about as much for some reason. If you're flying, you hear of it constantly. Everybody brags almost about that, but driving less so. Maybe because they're giving passengers lifts, I suppose. <laughs> that might be the reason. But w w one thing we've started doing uh, is, of course, you can do a virtual reality driving simulator. And of course, you could, in principle, go out in the car with them in the intersection. Well, that's, that's kind of messy and difficult. But just putting Google Street View up on, on a screen, getting them to sit in front of an intersection that they normally feel panicked at, and just to, just to relax, do some progressive relaxation breathing, and actually take the time to look at the various cues, the lane managements, the signs. Because normally, when they're at that intersection, they're panicking, they're thinking about what the motorist behind them is thinking of them, and they're not attending, so there's a lot of stress. So if you do that, and Google Street View is great because you can get their local intersections, then people from different regions, and then when they go out, that generalizes, it's very useful. So it's very flexible, I think, but there's other times we would just do it physically and real, it'd be a bit simpler. You said it too, you said you're not psychologists, and uh, I would strongly dispute that. And I, you know, I don't say that just to compliment you because of the depth and thoroughness of your work, but I say it uh, to place responsibility upon you because you can't not be a psychologist in what you do. <clears throat> so there can be maybe psychologists with a capital P or a small p if you feel like it, you know, if you really want to make distinctions. But the point is, as we're in the business of psychology, if we're dealing with anything that has any even ergonomic aspect to it, if you're a chair manufacturer, you're 
you're a psychologist, that's going to affect how people work at their desks. That's a psychological enterprise. Now, look, in the respects, I'm not a psychologist. There's any number of sub-disciplines I don't jump into that my colleagues do. There's other areas of psychology I do specialize in. There is no, you know, the single psychology. This is a big distributed affair that we're all engaged in. And I think that's a helpful thing, and that's something that's been happening increasingly in recent time, is this amazing convergence. I'm a bit of a technologist, <laughs> but you know, I'm more a psychologist. Somebody else might be a bit more one than the other, but we're all doing the same thing. It's true, and that's why I was making that example earlier of the, the role of the projector in the cinema experience. You know, we want this invisibility, I think ideally. We'd all like to see these things disappear so there isn't a, a novelty factor and a learning curve in these things. And, you know, of course, of course with that time, that will happen. Um, the direct versus indirect thing, it, it's important because, you know, there are increasingly going to be implants and, and, and things like that, and we'll have to see how that pans out. But I, I think we mistakenly believe... Uh, that, that we perceive in, a, in an indirect way anyway. In a sense, everything is direct. The, the, there's different forms of it. W what matters, I suppose, most is that it's ecologically valid, that we're having experiences that are somewhat compatible with our other experiences. I think that's the broader point. Implant or not isn't so much the issue. Uh, David Cracker from the Santa Fe Institute has a nice distinction he makes uh, between complementary and competitive cognitive artifacts, which I think is a useful one. The, the example he uses is of, uh, of an abacus versus a calculator and apparently skilled abacus users if you take the you can take the abacus away from them and they can still they've internalized the capacity to use the abacus so they don't need the abacus anymore uh, whereas you take the calculator away from somebody they've got a problem so in a sense to the degree we have the implants or the supports of the systems continuously accessible and online we're okay but of course you just need to take our smartphones away from us and we're screwed already today so we haven't internalized that capacity. So it's an interesting question. What we want, I think, from a therapeutic rehabilitative training perspective is actually to entrain by a person coupling with the system, internalizing, decoupling, but retaining. That's ideally what we want in that sense. When you think about implants, that's interesting because then you're bringing the technology with you, potentially relying on it. Different uses.